0: The following message is brought to you by the Teaching and Preaching Ministry of the Ambassador Baptist Church and Pastor Joshua Ermler. For several years, while I was in uh, junior high and high school, I lived in a town, you might have heard of it, it was called Baghdad. Now it's probably not the Baghdad you're thinking of. Uh, We lived in a little town called Baghdad, Arizona. It was a little town of about 1500. You say, what part of the town is this right here? Uh, This is the town. Uh, That was it. Uh, was about 1,500 people, actually one of the biggest copper mines uh, in the state of Arizona. Now living in a small town in the middle of nowhere, as you can see, we're nestled right up against this Mesa uh, in the Arizona desert there. There really wasn't much for anybody to do much less uh, junior hires and high schoolers, so uh, me and my friends, oftentimes we would go traipsing through the desert with our BB guns and our 22s. and uh, my brother, my friend and I, we would often go hiking up up Mesa, there we are, uh, I tell you what, the early 2000s were not kind to me. Um, yeah, so God has done a transformation work. No, I'm just kidding. Um, yeah, that, that was us. And uh, anyways, oftentimes we we'd go out hiking on that Mesa. we go out hiking in the desert, and nearly every time we would go out, uh, we would come across a rattlesnake. It was just part of living in the Arizona desert. And whenever we would see a rattlesnake, there's your first instant rush of adrenaline because you're scared for your life, right? And then me and my friend and my brother, we would proceed to unload every bit of ammunition we had on our person into that one little rattlesnake. Uh, we wanted to make sure that that snake was dead. I can remember one time, uh, that's my friend here uh, after one of the snakes we caught. I can remember one time he had a 22 pistol and he literally shot that thing at that snake so fast that in our 15 and 16 year old minds, it sounded like a machine gun. I mean, we were just, we were making sure that snake was dead. Uh, but anyways, after that, what we would do is we'd go out and we'd find a large snake We'd hold down the snake's head and then we cut the head off and then we would take the body uh, back down to our house much to my mother and his mother's uh, dismay (laughs) we would bring that rattlesnake back we would then uh, skin the rattlesnake i know some of you are grimacing right now this is what 15 year olds do in the desert i'm just telling you and our dads they would take that snake skin and they would use it in their leather work they would make like uh hat bands for cowboy hats and they'd put it on their wallets and on our belts and uh, as kids we would keep the rattles As trophies of our manliness. My friend, he had a jar of rattles that he had from all the different rattlesnakes. Uh, Now, you might not realize this, but even after a rattlesnake is dead, it can still bite you. Uh, The nerves and the muscles in that snake will keep striking, sometimes for up to 24 hours. And so, if you're not careful, you could still get bit, and you can still get poisoned by a dead rattlesnake. So what we would always do is after we would cut the head off, we would always make sure that we would bury it or we would put it under a rock because the poison on a rattlesnake is located right on the top of its head. And we wanted to be careful because we didn't want us or our dog or somebody coming behind us to not know that it was there and then get bit by that, that head. And so we would always bury it or put it under a rock because we didn't want to get poisoned. And the truth is sin in the life of believers is the same way. As we're going to see in a moment, the Apostle Paul, he's going to tell us, we are dead to sin. The snake is dead. But make no mistake, we can still get bit. So as believers, how do we navigate this tension? The tension of, I'm dead to sin, but it's still very real. It's still very dangerous. It is still, we can still get bit, so to speak. How do we navigate the tension between what is, we're dead to sin, and the not yet reality of, sin is still very much a part of, of the broken world that we live in turn in your bibles to colossians chapter number three it's where we'll be at this morning we are continuing our sermon series called metamorphosis uh, a few weeks ago we went through the series secrets to a satisfied life and we looked at these foundational truths that the apostle paul laid out in colossians chapter one and chapter number two and now in our next series we're looking at how those foundational truths transform th- our everyday lives and they transform different parts of how we live. And this morning, we're going to see how we are to be transformed in our lifestyle. Uh, if you're a guest here today, we want to say welcome. Thanks so much for worshiping with us on Father's Day uh, weekend. On your way in, you should have received a welcome booklet. On the back page, there's a connection card that you can fill out and you'll want to drop that off at the gray welcome tent. If you haven't already done that on your way out this morning, we have a small gift that we'd like to give you just to say thanks for being with us this morning. Uh, also on your way in, the usher should have given you a service program guide. There's an outline that you can use to follow along as we study God's word this morning. I'd like to invite all of us, if we're physically able, to stand. As we read our text this morning, Colossians chapter number 3, we're going to read verse 5 down through verse number 10 for our text reading this morning. The Bible says, Therefore, talk about that word in a minute, Therefore, put to death what belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, God's wrath is coming upon the disobedient. And you once walked in these things when you were living in them. But now, put away all the following. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and filthy language from your mouth. Do not lie one to another, since you have put off the old self, what this practice is, and have put on the new self. You are being renewed in the knowledge, according to the image, of your God creator. This morning, we're going to see the Apostle Paul lays out for us that we affirm our new life by living a new way. Let's pray. Father, we love you so much, and we thank you for the work that you did for us on Calvary. We thank you that once, a, that once we placed our faith and trust in you, Lord, that we were dead to sin. And like we just saying a moment ago, it has no more power over us. Father, I pray as we look at you, your word, your Holy Spirit would help us understand how we can, by faith, live in this reality. We ask this in your name. Amen, and you may be seated. Well, the Apostle Paul, he starts off, verse number five, with the word therefore. And like we'll often say around here, whenever you see the word therefore, you need to go back and see what it's there for. Uh, The reason is, Paul, his next statement is built off his previous statement. So Paul has laid these foundational truths, and now he's going to say, because of these foundational truths, here's how it plays out in our life. He gave us the indicative. He gave us what is true And now he's going to show us the implication. What he said previously can't really be separated from what he's about to say. He gave us the indicative. This is the truth. Now, here's the implication. Here's how it plays out in our lives. So what was the indicative? Well, the indicative that he gave us leads us to our first thought this morning, and that is recognize we are dead to sin. If we're going to experience transformation in our lifestyle, it starts by recognizing that we are dead to sin. He says this in verse number three of chapter three, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. This is a major theme of nearly all the apostle Paul's writing. He says this in nearly every one of his epistles. He takes time to emphasize to believers that he's writing to that we are dead to sin The Holy Spirit really wants this reality to be driven home in the life of every believer. You are dead to sin. It has no more power over you. He wrote a whole chapter about it in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 6. He says in verses 6 and 7, For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin since a person who has died is freed from sin. He goes on in verse number 11 of Romans 6. So you too consider, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The King James translates that word consider. It says likewise reckon yourselves dead to sin. The Greek word that uh, reckon or consider is translated from carries the idea of taking inventory. It's a mathematical term and Paul is telling us to take inventory, to realize, to consider ourselves dead to sin. When I was in high school, I spent several summers working at a Christian camp up in Flagstaff, Arizona. There's a picture of us staff. You can see me on the back row with the glasses. Again, not a good-looking kid. Um, But yeah, there we are. Uh, So uh, throughout the summer, we would work up there at that uh, camp. And uh, my official and a lot of our official position, we were called operational staff. It was just a fancy way of saying we just did all the dirty work around the camp. Included everything from washing dishes to setting up games to cleaning the campgrounds. Uh, But one of the things that our job was, and nearly on a weekly basis, what we would have to do is we'd have to go into the big walk-in freezer where they kept all the frozen food and take inventory. And when we would go into that walk-in freezer and take inventory, all we would do is go into that freezer and see what food was there so we would know what we need to order. Now when we did that, we weren't adding anything into the freezer. We weren't taking anything away from the freezer. We weren't rearranging. All we were doing is seeing how much frozen food was in the freezer. So when Paul tells us to reckon or to consider ourselves dead to sin, he's saying, I want you to take inventory of your life and realize you're dead to this. I want you to be aware. I want you to believe. I want you to know beyond a shadow of a doubt as a fact that you are dead to sin. I want you to know what already is a reality. Now, the reason God emphasizes this so much in Scripture, and the reason we want to keep it in front of ourselves as a church, is because believing this, is absolutely vital to living the life that God has called us to live. Believing that we are dead to sin, recognizing that I am dead to sin, is absolutely vital to experiencing the abundant life that Jesus wants me to have. It's vital to experiencing joy unspeakable and full of glory. Recognizing that sin has no more power over me is the key to overcoming temptation. It's the key to living a life that uh, glorifies God. At the very core of who we are, we must Believe that we are dead to sin, that sin has no more power over us. But then there's the tension, isn't there? We know we're dead to sin. We know sin has no power over us. The grave has no claim on me, and we sing that and we celebrate it. But how oftentimes do we find ourselves still sinning? There's the tension. Yes, I know I'm dead to sin, but so oftentimes I sin. Jesus killed the snake. But we often still get bit. I like what one pastor, he said, the death and new creation are decisive and once for all. The death and resurrection of Jesus, our death and being risen with him, is decisive. It is a done deal. When Jesus says, it is finished, it is finished. However, living out of this reality is a daily work of faith. I'd like to say it this way, because we are dead to sin, we can put sin to death. Which leads us to our second thought this morning. Yes, we must recognize that we are dead to sin, but we also need to regularly put sin to death in our own lives. Now remember, again, the indicative drives the imperative. The indicative that we are dead to sin drives the imperative to regularly put sin to death. Who we are by God's grace, dead to sin, drives us to to do what God's Word calls us to do, put sin to death. This is why Paul, starting in verse 5, tells us to put these things to death. They belong to our earthly nature. They are part of our flesh. Paul says, you're dead to sin, so kill these things. Kill these things so you can experience joy. Kill these things so you can experience abundant life. Now, we're going to go through this list in a moment, but before we jump into it, I want to say a lot of these things on this list, the difference in English is sometimes nuance. Pastor and I were talking about this week, it almost seems like Paul's kind of preaching here, and he's just listing all these things that he wants us to put to death. Uh, But as we go through these things, we have to keep in mind, God doesn't give us these lists because God's up in heaven saying, okay, how can I just make them miserable and make sure they don't have any fun? No, Jesus says, put these things to death because these things will rob you of your joy. Put these things to death because these things will keep you from experiencing the abundant Christian life. And the first thing, that he tells us to put to death in verse number five is sexual immorality put to death sexual immorality now the greek word here is porneia. you don't need to be a greek scholar to figure out the english word that we get from that greek word sexual immorality this is any type of sexual activity that is outside of what god has declared as good and holy anything outside the bounds. you say what are the bounds? god declares that only sex between a husband and a wife in marriage is good Any type of sexual expression outside of this context, God condemns as sinful. Because it hurts human flourishing. It hurts our souls. Over and over again, the Bible will warn that sexual sin literally hurts our own body, and it hurts the bodies of those that we do that sin with. And so the Apostle Paul warns us, because he loves us, put this sin to death. I read a pretty mind-blowing statistic this week while I was studying and reading for this week's message. Uh, Between the year 2015 and 2017, Humans watched a total of, get this, one million years of pornography on just one website. One million years on just one website. I told my wife that and she said, that makes me feel disgusting and it should. I should make our skin crawl because it is so dangerous and it is appalling and it's against the fact that we are created in the image of God. But the truth is that is inside of every single one of us. Our flesh has a propensity to that. And so the apostle Paul warns us and he says, hey, make sure you put that to death in your own life. He goes on, he says, put to death sexual immorality. He says, put to death impurity. This is talking about in a moral sense. This is the impurity of lustful thinking, lustful wanting, lustful desires. It could also be uh, fleshed out as recklessly extravagant and wasteful living. Uh, when Jesus in Matthew twenty three twenty seven told the Pharisees they were full of dead man's bones and all uncleanness, this was the Greek word that he was using there, arkath- akatharsia. I am not a Greek scholar, so sorry. But that's the type of impurity that the Apostle Paul is telling us to put to death. Now, this definitely has some behavioral manifestations, but this is something that actually starts inside of ourselves. This isn't just a behavior. This is something that takes place within our hearts. And the Apostle Paul says, hey, before this even becomes a behavior, when it's still a thought inside of you, the Apostle Paul says, we need to put that to death. He goes on, he says, put to death lust. The Greek word here is pathos. It's where we get the English word passion from. Now in a purely neutral sense, the Greeks would use this word to describe uh, whatever would befall them, whether good or bad, whether joyous or sad. Uh, Oftentimes it would be used to describe a calamity or a mishap or an affliction. Or they would often use this word to describe what they were feeling, a feeling of the mind, an affection of the mind, their emotions, their passions, a passionate desire. But as you study this word out in the New Testament, it's only used three times and it's always used in a negative sense. In the New Testament, it's something Uh, to describe impurity, it means depraved or vile, passionate desires. The apostle Paul is saying, put that to death, that evil, that passionate desire that you have for evil, that lustful, passionate, vile desire. He says, put it to death. And again, this isn't even a behavior. Notice as we go through this list how often Paul doesn't even list behaviors. He does. Sexual immorality, that's definitely some behavior, but he gets to the heart of it too by saying, this is what takes place inside of us, and put that to death. Next, he talks about evil desire. Uh, this is a, a similar, but a little bit of a different nuance. This talks about desires or cravings or longings for things that God has forbidden. This is different than temptation. Uh, we cannot control temptation. Jesus himself was tempted, yet without sin. Uh, this isn't evil desire, it's not temptation. A temptation is to be presented with evil specifically in an area or in a time we are weak. Um, When Satan tempted Jesus after he had fasted for nearly a whole month in the wilderness, he knew what he was doing. There was a reason he tempted Jesus when Jesus hadn't eaten for 30 days, and the first thing he did was tempt him with bread. Uh, As long as we live in a broken and sinful world, we will be tempted. We will be presented with sin. However, that does not mean we long for that. It doesn't mean we crave it. It doesn't mean we obsess over it. That's the difference between temptation and evil desire. Temptation becomes evil desire when we obsess over it and we crave it. And we want it, and our heart longs for it. Again, heart condition, heart behavior, not external behavior. He goes on, he says, put away greed. This is just a greedy desire to have more. It's covetousness. Again, heart condition. And Paul tells us this stems from idolatry. Really, all of these sins stem from idolatry. We fall into any one of these when we put something other than Jesus on the throne of our heart. When we desire something more than we desire Jesus, and the apostle Paul warns us, these things will kill your joy. So put them to death. These are things that we need to put to death. And it's, again, it's not just outward behavior. Oftentimes we like to ignore hard issues underneath and we like to focus on our behaviors, don't we? I mean, after a guy guys say, well, I'm not cheating on my wife. What does it matter what I think? It matters a whole lot. We can't ignore the behavior underneath. It's easier to look squeaky clean on the outside and ignore the lust, ignore the greed, ignore the evil desire that's growing inside. This is what Jesus tackled in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, you say don't kill. I say, if you hate your brother without cause, you've already committed murder. You say, don't commit adultery, and it's good not to commit adultery, amen? All right, I heard a couple ladies. Men, it's good not to commit adultery, right? All right, there we go. But Jesus took it a step further. He says, even if you lust after a woman in your heart, You've already committed adultery. And so what the apostle Paul does and what Jesus does is they eliminate wiggle room to get out of this list. We look at this list and say, well, I'm good. I haven't committed adultery. I don't look at pornography, so I'm good, right? And Paul and Jesus say, no, 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 no. We can't wiggle our way out of this. This hits every single one of us. Every single one of us needs to be aware how this could grow up from inside of us. Notice what Paul says in verse 6. Before he continues on, verse 6, he says, because of these things, God's wrath is coming upon the disobedient. Now, we as believers know that we are saved from God's wrath. Amen. (laughs) We are saved from God's wrath. Paul isn't trying to scare us here. What he's trying to do is he's trying to show us the seriousness of the sin. Uh, These sins rightfully deserve the wrath of God. Now again, thanks be to God that Jesus has absorbed that wrath for us, but that doesn't mean we treat this sin lightly. God killed Jesus for this sin. And because of that, we should do everything within our power made available to us by the grace and strength of God to put them to death in our own lives. I mean, sometimes we look at lists like this, and we kind of roll our eyes and say, okay, here we go. Here's everything we're not allowed to do, right? Here's the don't do list. Sometimes lists like this, they even reinforce um people's worst fear about what christians seem to obsess with but let's flip the script a little bit this morning you see we tend to go lightly on ourselves when we're the perpetrator we tend to go lightly on ourselves and think well i'm not that bad maybe a little bit but it's not that bad but i want you to imagine in your mind instead of being the perpetrator imagine you're the victim of one of these sins dads let me talk to you for a moment i want you to imagine one of your children being the victim imagine your daughter being the victim of one of these sins you would say, yeah, bring on the wrath. Ready or not, here comes the boom, right? And so what the Apostle Paul, he's trying to do here is he's trying to show us this is dangerous. This destroys human flourishing. This destroys the goodness that God wants us to experience. And so he's saying, we need to kill it in our own lives. Be tenacious about guarding yourself. Be tenacious about putting these things to death. Because this is no laughing matter, church. And because Paul loved us and God loves us, he warns us about these things. Because I love my kids, I don't let them play in the street. This is God's way of telling us as his children, as a good father, hey, don't play in the street. I love you, I want you to flourish. So put these things to death in your life. Be very aware, be ruthlessly self-aware with yourself. Because the truth is, Every single one of us has the potential to fall into these things. I mean, we often say, but for the grace of God, there go I, right? It's only by God's grace that we don't, and so we want to be ruthlessly aware so that we can, by the strength of God, put these things to death in our own life. 1 Corinthians 10:12: whoever thinks he stands must be careful unless he falls. Taking this list lightly may very well wreck our lives. But then Paul doesn't stop there. He goes on. He gives us another list of things we need to put out of our lives. He says, put away anger. The Greek word here is orge. It's really similar to, I think, where we get the word ogre. (laughs) How many of you know somebody that's like an ogre, right? They got some anger in their life. This type of anger, this orge here, it's like a temper. It's almost like this violent uh, uh, eruption of anger. Like you lose your cool and you yell. Like you get mad and you lose your temper and you yell at your kids or you yell at the dog and you just you lose your cool, you kind of blow your top off. That's this type of anger here. Paul tells us, put it away. Even if it's justifiable, he says, put it away. Next he tackles wrath. Now the Greek word here is different. We read anger and we read wrath and we're like, well what's the difference? The Greek word here is thymos. This deals with a fierceness or a passion or an anger that bubbles up inside of us but then it kind of just becomes settled. And instead of us just violently erupting with anger and losing our cool, we don't lose our cool, but we become settled with that anger. And we live with this anger. And we carry it around with us for weeks, for months, sometimes maybe even years. We're going to see next week, uh, forgiveness really is the key. I don't want to get into next week's message, but maybe there's something in your life that hasn't been settled, something that caused you to be angry, and you just carry around this anger with you. You see, uh, the first type of anger is like a sudden expression. It's temporary, you get mad and you lose your cool. The word for wrath is different. And because you're carrying around this wrath, it becomes the filter for how you interpret things in your life. It becomes the lens and the framework for how you interpret things. And because you carry around this wrath with you, you're more prone to the first type of anger, the violent expressions. And often you find yourself getting mad at things and you're like, why did I get mad about that? Why did, my my kid who was just being a kid, why did I lose my cool? because you're walking around with this wrath. And Paul warns us, he says, this isn't good for your soul. Put it away, kill that in your life. Next he warns us of malice. This is just ill will, the desire to injure somebody. How many of you, you've ever thought about somebody and just the thought of them makes you want to throat punch them? Just, just the thought of them, you're like, oh, I can't stand the thought of that person. That's malice. <laughs> That's what Paul says, to kill that malice in your life, that desire to injure somebody. He then goes on and says slander. The Greek word there is blasphemia. I mean, we we think about blaspheming God, but we can also do that to our fellow brethren. We can do that to our fellow people. We can slander them. That's just any type of speech that damages their good name. Most gossip falls into this category, slander. Paul says put away filthy language, foul speaking, low or obscene speech. There's just a certain way Christians shouldn't talk. And Paul says he wants to warn us about that because it's not good for us. It's not healthy for us. Then lastly, he says don't lie, tell each other the truth. Actively working at killing these sins in our lives is not optional. The reason God wants us to put these things to death in our lives is because God has something better for us, church. God loves you so much, he doesn't want sin to destroy your life. God did not send his son to die on the cross to redeem us from sin so that sin can still wreak havoc in our lives and because God loves us so much, he says let me warn you. Don't play in the street. Don't play with sin. Actively work at putting it to death in your life. John Piper said, killing sin is not optional. This is mortal combat. Sin dies or we die, but we refuse to settle in with sin. Jesus came to give us abundant life. This is why he says, stay away from these things. Uh, The Puritan preacher and writer John Owens, uh, in his book, the mortification of sin, said, do you mortify? It's just an old English word for saying, do you kill your sin? Do you make it your daily work? He said, be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. So what Paul said in Romans 8, chapter, uh, chapter 8, verses 12 and 13. So then, brothers and sisters, we're not obligated to, l- to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, Paul's again going back to the indicative. We're not obligated to the flesh. You're free from it. It has no power over you. You don't have to do what your flesh tells you to do because if you live according to the flesh, you are going to die. But if you by the spirit, by the power, the resurrection power of the spirit, the grace and power of God that's made available to us in the gospel of Jesus, if we by the spirit put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So, how do we experience abundant life by actively working at putting these things to death? I want to give us a list this morning of just some practical ways that we can actively work at killing the sin in our lives. First of all, number one, continually remind yourself that the old sinful you is already dead. We will beat that drum until Jesus comes back. The new you doesn't want to sin. The old you is dead. Sin has no more power over you. In your fight for sin, in your fight for joy, as you fight to live the abundant Christian life, constantly remind yourself that the old sinful you is dead. Galatians 5.24 Now those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. When temptation comes, when temptation rears its ugly head, remind yourself that that's not me anymore. The real Nick Minerva doesn't want that sin anymore. The, the Nick Minerva that wanted that sin is dead. It's buried six feet under, eight feet under, ten feet under. It's dead as a doorknob. It is gone. It has no more power over me. Constantly remind yourself that your old sinful self is already dead. Number two, develop a hatred for your sin. One of the signs that somebody is growing in Christ is they begin to love what God loves. They love people unconditionally. Unconditionally. They love sinners unconditionally because they recognize by the grace of God that's where they were apart from the gospel. And so we love the things that God loves. We love his word. We love his body. We love those that still need to come to Christ, but we also hate the things that God hates. And as we grow in our love for Jesus, yes, we're going to love sinners, but we're also going to hate sin because of the damage that it does and the havoc that it wreaks in our lives as we grow closer and closer to Jesus, we're gonna begin to hate that sin more. So work at developing a hatred for your own sin. The truth is, you're not gonna kill the sin in your life if you're comfortable with it. If you're okay with it being there, you're not gonna kill it, and my friends, it will kill you. It will kill me, it will kill us. So develop a hatred for it. Uh, Number three, be intentional and even extreme about avoiding temptation be intentional, and maybe even extreme. Uh, Paul said in Romans 13, 14, uh, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and don't make plans to gratify the desires of your flesh. I mean, Jesus was pretty extreme when he says, if your right eye offends you, pluck it out. If your hand offends you, cut it off. Jesus is saying, do whatever it takes to avoid temptation, to avoid sin. There might be some guys in here and you just need to cut your internet. And yeah, that would be hard. <laughs> that, that, that would be miserable to an extent. But you've battled and you've battled and you've battled and you might just need to take the next step and just cut the internet. Some of you might need to just say, I'm just gonna break from social media. I can't handle the temptation. Maybe you're here today and, and, and it's not uh, the sexual immorality that's on social, that can be on social media that tempts you, but you're constantly comparing yourself to other people. And every time you see somebody else's highlight reel on social media, you're comparing your behind the scenes. And you struggle, and you can't experience contentment in Christ because you're constantly comparing yourselves to other people. You might just need to get a little extreme and cut that out of your life. It's not that cutting it out of your life is gonna change your heart, but what cutting these things out of your life will do is they'll give the Holy Spirit space so he can change your heart. My dependence isn't what I don't do. we, We are intentional and we're extreme, why? so the Holy Spirit can have the time and the space that it takes to change me. You might need to do something as extreme as confessing your sin to a group of friends and getting some accountability in your life. We have this thing around here, you might have heard of it, it's called connection groups. (laughs) It's environments we have in our lives so people can pray for us. And I know that sounds extreme and that sounds scary But we might need to just take that step and so people can pray for us. So you can have some friends that'll check in and see how you're doing and point you to the grace of God that's available to you. Be intentional and maybe even extreme. I don't know what that would look like for you, but ask the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, what do I need to do? I don't think we literally need to pluck our eyes out, but we might need to cut our internet. We might need to cut social media. There's stores we say, I'm just, I'm just not gonna go there. There's too, much of, there's too much temptation. There's too easy for me to stumble. There's some friends that you have in your life. You may say, hey man, I love you. I pray for you. But we can't be best friends anymore. Because it's just not helping me be intentional or even extreme about avoiding temptation. Uh, number four, replace bad habits with holy habits. I know we say this a lot around here, but you can't take something bad out of your life without replacing it with something good. If you don't replace the bad habit with a good one, you're going to fall right back into the old sinful habit. And so build some holy habits into your life that help you focus on the grace of God and experience His love for you so that over time you can experience the joy of the Spirit and victory over sin. Number five, develop your spiritual appetite. Develop your spiritual appetite. I love what one pastor said. He said, if we don't feel strong desires for the manifestation of the glory of God, if you don't feel strong desires to spend time with God, if you don't have a strong desire to be in his presence, to be with his people, to be in his word, it's not because we've drunk so deeply and are satisfied. It's because we've nibbled so long at the table of the world. Our soul is stuffed with small things so that there's no room for great things. Jesus kind of hit it on the head in Mark four nineteen. He says, but the worries of this age, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desire for other things, they enter in and they choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. One of the reasons we don't desire God, like I think we want to, our new nature wants to, obviously we want, we want to desire God because we're all here on a holiday. We all took some time out to come and worship God together. There is a desire to desire God But one of the reasons I think we don't desire him like we want to is because we've stuffed ourselves with lesser things. I mean, I I don't think I've ever read Psalm 42, 1 and 2 and not been convicted by it. David says, as the deer longs for flowing streams, so I long for you. I thirst for God, the living God. David's like, I need God so much. It's just like my body needs water. That's how much I need God. I mean, that should be our prayer, that should be our goal, and the way that happens is we actively work at eliminating any appetite that competes with God. Uh, There was about a three-year period where I, uh, my wife and I, we didn't drink any soda. We cut it out, and I'm just gonna be honest with you, those first couple weeks were miserable. I wanted nothing more than a big, tall glass of all-American Coke, right? Like, I wanted it. My body craved it. I didn't like water, I thought this tastes nasty. It tastes like nothing. I don't want water, I want that soda. But I stuck with it. And you know what happened over time? I stopped desiring coke. I stopped desiring soda. Water started tasting good. Who would have thought? And over time, I began to have a stronger appetite for water. I can remember after that three year period, I took a glass of coke, I I, I drank a, a glass of coke, and it tasted gross. It tasted like I was drinking syrup from a tree. It was disgusting. But then you know what happened? A week later, I had another cup, and that eh, wasn't so bad. <laughs> a week later, hey, that's pretty good. And now I like the dumb stuff again. So frustrating. The truth is, though, as humans, we want what we eat on a physical level. We have an appetite for the things we regularly feast on. And as humans, on a soul level, we are shaped by the things we allow into our life. We are shaped by what we choose to focus on. That's why last week's message is so vital. Like, if you missed last week's message, plug in some headphones and listen to it right now, because the rest of what I'm going to say doesn't matter. Um, what we focus on is so vitally important. Don't do that. That might be a stumbling block to somebody else. Uh, but if we're going to be serious about fighting to desire God above all else, if I'm going to be serious about creating an appetite and building a spiritual appetite for God and the things of God, I need to get extremely selective by what I allow into my life as inputs. It might not be a bad idea to take a fast from certain forms of media. All media, I mean, it wouldn't hurt you. (laughs) You might just say, I'm gonna take a break from my phone for a while so I can spend more time in the Word, and go old school, get a physical Bible. Now, I'm not gonna say that the Bible app on your phone is less the Word of God than a physical Bible, but we all know the temptation of our phone, right? How many of you have had the very best intention, you pull out your phone, you're gonna read your Bible, And then by default, your thumb opens Instagram. It's like muscle memory. You don't even think about it. And then 10 minutes later, you're like, oh, I didn't even read the Bible yet. Put your phone away for a little while. Go old school. Get yourself a new Bible. Open it up and read God's word. Why? So you can begin to feast on God's word. So you can work at creating an appetite for the word of God. Take a fast from TV. Take a fast from media. Take a fast from whatever the competing appetite is. So that you can develop that appetite for God and start small. Don't say the first day I'm going to lock my phone in a box and I'm going to read the whole Bible. You will crash and burn, baby. Don't do that. (laughs) Start small. Say for 15 minutes. When I would normally look at my phone, I'm going to take 15 minutes I'm going to read the Bible. I'm going to take 15 minutes I'm going to pray. And then as you get used to that, after a couple weeks of that, say, okay, now I'm going to do 20 minutes. And then now I'm going to do 30 minutes. Begin to develop your spiritual appetite. The reason we have no appetite for spiritual things is because we stuff ourselves with things that have no eternal significance. This is why uh, the psalmist said, I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. Just like right now your body would probably rather have a nice slice of pizza instead of a dry salad, the natural propensity of our soul is to lean towards things that are vain and worthless. So do what the psalmist said. I'm just going to make a commitment that I'm not going to set anything that's worthless before my eyes. Not even sinful things, but worthless things. By the power and grace of God, we have to fight to desire God. That is how we gain long-term victory over sin. Because as you grow your appetite for God, as you're transformed in that, when sin and temptation come, you're like, I don't even want that anymore. Because I have drank at the well of Jesus, and my heart is so satisfied. Work at developing your spiritual appetite. Remind yourself when it's hard that this is what the real you wants. The new you, the redeemed you, the new creation wants to develop that spiritual appetite. There are no crowns in heaven for longest Netflix binge. And I I hope some of you dads can go home today and veg out for a little bit. I really do. But work at developing that spiritual appetite. Develop your spiritual appetite and the things of this world will begin to lose their appeal. uh, Last and most important the most important way we get victory over sin, the most important way we're transformed, the most important way we put off the old is to remind ourselves that we are already new. Let's circle this back around to our text in verse 9 and 10. Don't lie to one another, since you've put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self. It is a done deal, church. You are new. You are new. You are a new creation in Christ. You are new. You had that new self put on and Paul goes on to say, you are being renewed. You are Not you need to renew. There are other passages that tell us to renew but in this passage he says, you are being renewed. According to the, in knowledge, according to the image of your creator. God has made you new and then God is constantly working at renewing you. God that started the work he's continuing that work. He's going to finish it until the day when he comes back remind yourself that I am new and God is renewing me so that I look more and more like Jesus. Paul gives us a visual metaphor here of changing clothes, which is why I'm not going to demonstrate that one this morning. Um, just like this morning, we got up, we took off our pajamas, and we put on our clothes for church, which thank you, by the way. Um, your old self has been taken off, and the new one is on. It's, it's on. You are new. The best way we get long-term victory over sin is reminding ourselves that this is not me anymore. The new me wants holiness. The new me desires righteousness. The new me desires God. The new self replaced the old and it's continually being renewed in the image of God. As we seek to kill sin, wherever it rears its ugly head, we keep our dependence on God because God is the one that's renewing us. We keep our hearts trusting in him because he is the one renewing us into his image. This is who God has saved us to be. If you boil it all down, it's being who you already are. Being who you already are. In conclusion, uh, in Homer's classic tale, The Odyssey, the hero Odysseus embarks on a perilous journey. He must escape many dangers on his voyage home from the Trojan War, and arguably, none of these dangers are more perilous than the deadly sirens. These mythical mermaids were beautiful and seductive, but their appeal is deceptive. In truth, they were murderous creatures, who would use their sweet song to lure sailors to their death. Sounds a lot like sin, doesn't it? Looks good. It looks appealing. But it'll kill us. Odysseus, in the story, he understands this danger. He knows he's vulnerable to their song. So while he's on his journey home, he hatches a plan to sail past the uh, the sirens without succumbing. He tells the sailors to tie him to the mast of his ship. This way, even if Odysseus surrenders to the siren song, he will be unable to free himself and go to them. He commands the sailors not to loosen the ropes, no matter how much he pleads and no matter how much he begs them to do so. They must ignore him and keep on sailing. To make sure the sailors don't succumb, he instructs them to stuff their ears with beeswax so they won't hear the siren songs. And so they tie Odysseus up to the pole, they stuff their ears, and it works. But as he suspects, he hears the sirens and he's overcome with temptation. And he begs the sailors, release me, untie me, please. But they don't. They just tighten the rope and they continue to sail. And they get past the deadly sirens. Uh, But there's another story in Greek mythology about another crew that overcame the siren songs. This story is different and it's actually more crucial to experiencing long-term victory over sin. This approach is depicted in the Argonautica. That's another Greek epic. In this story, the Argonauts must sail past the same deadly sirens on their journey, but they escape their deadly snare with a different strategy. As they sail past the sirens, they hear singing, but they had the legendary musician and poet Orpheus on board, and as they sail past those sirens, he draws out his lyre, and he plays a louder and more beautiful song, drowning out the sirens' music. Enthralled with Orpheus' sweeter songs, the sailors pass by in safety. It's an effective strategy, one that doesn't need ropes and beeswax. Instead of merely restraining the hand, this strategy captures the heart. Church, let me say, there may be times when we need to pull an Odysseus and tie ourselves to the mass so sin doesn't wreck our lives. But the way we get long-term victory over sin, the way we experience authentic victory and walk in victory is by listening to a sweeter song, that sweeter song of Jesus, that sweeter song of his mercy, that sweeter song of his grace, that sweeter song that reminds us that in Jesus there's all satisfaction, there's all joy, there's everything our hearts could ever long for and hope for in him. You see, as Christians, we're not defined by what we say no to but by who we say yes to. And the way we listen to that sweeter song is by saying yes to Jesus, by surrendering to Jesus, by allowing Him to be the source of our lives. You see, killing sin is essential to the Christian life, but it is not the essence of the Christian life. When Christ calls us to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow Him, He does summon us to deny ourselves. But He does so that we may have life and life more abundant. What we put on is far greater than what we take off. What we, get, what we get in exchange is far greater than anything we give up. And so when Paul warns us about these sins, we have to remind ourselves, this isn't God's way of making us miserable, of saying, no, no, you can't have fun, you need to be a miserable, sour Christian. He's like, this is how you can actually be happy, by avoiding these things. This is how you can experience life. So here's our takeaway, church. Fight your sin from a position of victory. From a position of I am dead to sin, from a position I have the resurrection power in my life, from a position of, like we talked about a few weeks ago, that sin has been nailed to the cross and it's got no more power in me. Fight your sin from a position of victory so that you can experience abundant life. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Teaching and Preaching Ministry of the Ambassador Baptist Church. If this message was a blessing to you, please consider leaving us a review or sharing the message on social media. Thanks once again for tuning in.